welcome to the Noble Mother Podcast. This is a podcast for people who want to heal, learn, and grow from powerful stories and experiences shared by sovereign mothers and women. Mothers and women who question when their sovereignty is in danger. Mothers and women who have faced deep grief and loss. Mothers and women who have walked the coals inside themselves to unprogram what they thought and who they could trust to really come home to themselves and their power. These mothers and women fiercely protect their spiritual energy and their family's health and well-being. On the Noble Mother podcast, we will share stories of birth, life, magic, and death. I hope you find healing in the wisdom shared. I'm your host, Victoria Nicholas, and these are the Noble Mothers and Noble Women and their stories. Hello. I I wanted to just add this sort of intro before introducing Amy Blair and our conversation together because it was just such a found honor to have her on the podcast and connect. We I also had some technical glitches, so we I, my computer crashed at one point, so I was like, oh man, it kind of ran into our time together, and so. I felt like there were so many kind of unanswered loops that I wanted to incorporate and weave into this podcast episode, but that's okay because sometimes that happens. So, you know, I, I, I asked Amy to come on because she is a, she was a regulated midwife who left the system and she's just completely blossomed into this, well, spiritual midwife sort of like she said, journeying that galactic and spiritual space for humans. And so she's just really transformed. But one thing I really wanted to ask her about was that I didn't get to in the podcast was she talked about sort of the pinnacle of what motivated her and sort of the light bulb went off and she said, oh, I can no longer participate in this work. And it was the death of her son, Killian, which she goes into great detail, you know, moving through what that experience was like for her. And yeah, so I I asked I asked her after the podcast episode sort of a bit of a timeline which I wanted to give now before you you dive into our conversation together. So Killian died in July of 2016. She then went back to school 9 months later in 2017 just to kind of co- complete the midwifery requirements to be licensed. She graduated in 2018 and then Kieran her daughter was born. And she started working as a registered paid midwife in December 2018. And then her last day was January 1st of 2020. So yeah, she had said to me it was a long 3.5 years. It felt so long. And so, 
you know, she talks about the this the unnatural sort of progression that unfolded as she knew this was a profession that she needed to leave. And I wanted to just put that timeline out there just so you knew that uh, Killian, you know, didn't die and then she didn't just leave immediately. It was a it was a process of her unwake of her awakening and sort of unraveling and moving through that experience as well as birthing a daughter in that time frame. And she talks about the birth of her son William, who she did have regulated midwives for that last birth, but it it was a free birth for her. So just a lot of beautiful insight from Amy in this episode, a lot of grief, a lot of insight around the profession itself of midwifery and the regulations. And I just hope that you enjoy it. It was just such an honor to have her on the podcast. You know, when you have technical glitches in a podcast, as a podcast host, like the worst thing that can possibly happen to you. But I hope that you enjoy you know, and you feel the seamlessness of our energy together. And I just love you and appreciate you all. And thank you for your your um, energy and your currency of time. So please enjoy. Hello. Welcome back to the Noble Mother podcast for this calendar year of 2023. I am just beyond honored to introduce and welcome Amy Belair to the podcast she is just a, she's a soul nourisher for me in my own personal life. So what an honor. Amy is a mother, an artist, retired midwife for babies. She's a spiritual midwife for souls navigating the liminal spaces of their journeys. Amy's the co-author of Priestess Transmissions and the founder of Priestess Codes and host of the Third Eye Awakening podcast. Amy is so much more and more and more in other realms and galaxies and spaces. So I, it feels like a short bio because you are just, you are life, Amy, really. So it's so beautiful to have you here. I'm so grateful for your presence and welcome. Oh, what a beautiful introduction. And thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk with you, Tori, and just have this conversation about motherhood and babies and the system within which these, you know, souls enter and mothers are born and reborn. So much to go into. There is. I Well, I mean, so the thing is, is that Amy was a regulated midwife prior to, I feel like the Amy that is now, and I mean, the Amy that it is now is someone that I just, you know, your Patreon spaces and your YouTube channels and your podcasts and your Akashic readings, your, pre, your book, The Priestess Transmissions, you you have such a richness and a vastness to you, but you so interesting. You started off this very 3D career in a very regulated system. And mm -hmm. so I would just, and a lot of my listeners, of course, come because I have the birth doula element and I wanted to have you on as someone who's so tapped in to their energetic knowing now and so connected to love in so many ways, but started off, you know, in an industry that I kind of wanted you to be really honest and talk about and what that was like being a regulated midwife. What, you know, what brought you to becoming a regulated midwife? Yeah, well, when I was two, I distinctly remember standing in my parents' backyard and I had these two baby dolls, Dusty and Susie. They were kind of mm -hmm. decrepit and gross looking, but I loved them. They were my children and they were like the stand-ins for my babies. And I was thinking like, 
I knew as a two-year-old, I had this vague concept that like I would have to be 20 or something, even though I really didn't understand what that meant before I could have babies. And I just remember feeling like, oh, it's going to be so long. And I knew that I was here to have babies, to be a mom, to work with moms. I didn't even know what pregnancy was, but like I just knew that that was my, that's my thing. And then, you know, as a little girl, like I would sneak into my mom's room and in her night table drawer, there was this pamphlet that she got when she was pregnant with me about like, you know, whatever, this like gestational phases of a human pregnancy. And I would like sneak in there privately. I don't know why I was sneaking, but I would like look at this with so much fascination. So I always knew that I was supposed to work in this area. And then when I was 22, I got pregnant with my oldest son. And just before I got pregnant with him, I was living in Toronto in the annex and with my partner at the time when we were super, super poor. So we would just, you know, have to find free things to do for like, it was like pre-internet, pre-cell phone, all that stuff. And we went to this bookstore called Seekers, which was in a basement and it was a used bookstore. And I found Spiritual Midwifery by Ida Mae Gaskin. You're right. Yeah. And I was reading it and I was like, I don't know. It was just every, everything was everything for me at that time. Like everything that I already knew being articulated in very hippie-ish language and just so beautiful and powerful. And then I got pregnant. I think that's what opened me up to be able to be pregnant. And I didn't even know what midwives were. And I was so lucky there was a new midwifery clinic in my small podunk town of Palmerston, Ontario. Like it had literally just opened its doors. And so I was able to get a midwife and it was such a wonderful experience. And I had a home birth and she was like, everything that I feel that midwifery can be. Like she was supportive and she answered my questions and she she held the vision of my my unmedicated home birth for me so solidly. She used aromatherapy, homeopathic. She offered me sterile water injections, but I was too afraid to take them. Like she she offered every gentle intervention possible to support this vision. And I had a successful home birth and it felt like a long one for me because my water broke before labor started and my baby was posterior and, you know, like prime at birth. And so it was just one of those long drawn out, kind of a little bit textbook. And, and she never, she never said hospital, never said pain relief. She was just amazing. And afterwards she told me that like, she gave me this huge hug and she was like, you did such a good job. And she said, I think you should be a midwife. And I was like, what? Like me? And I was so honored, but she the she reiterated it a few times in our postpartum visits because she said, apparently Francis came out not breathing right away and they were kind of worried. I don't even actually remember this happening, but it is in the documentation where they ended up, you know, clamping and cutting the cord and taking him over and just working on him to get him. Like they didn't really have to, you know, do a resuscitation, but just they were a little bit worried. And she said, I just said to them, don't worry. He's here. He's here. He's fine. And she said that I kept saying thank you to people all the time during my labor. And just, I don't know, she thought that I kept a really cool head during it. I didn't feel like I was like cool headed, but 
anyway, so that just stuck with me. And then it took years before I I applied once to the program at Ryers when Francis was maybe like one and didn't get accepted because it's so competitive. And then years later, in, in the interim, I went to art school. And then after that, a couple of years after that, I applied to Laurentian to get into the bilingual program. And I got in. And so in my mind, what midwifery was, like, I had no idea about the regulations. I was so naive. I thought it was like spiritual midwifery. I thought what I would be doing was just receiving, like preserving natural birth, but being present when, you know, like I was aware that sometimes things don't allow for that. And just being present. I think I was imagining I would be a hands-on doula. Like, I think that's what I thought. And I would just be like receiving babies into my hands and that my hands had the ability to bless these babies with love so that no matter what their lives ended up being like, the, their first interaction with somebody outside of their mother in this world would be like to be held and received in loving hands. It makes me want to cry even thinking about it because that's that's literally how I feel and it's wish what I wish I could have done. Mm-hmm. And that's not what there is no space for that in the regulated profession. So but but I do think that I did my best and I did what I could. Like I don't I don't have regrets like, oh, I should have done better. It's more just like the part that makes me tear up is how traumatic this life is for all of us how traumatic birth is and it doesn't have to be that way and how that really sets us off on a path of I think more pain and more alienation and loneliness than we ever have to experience Mm -hmm. and it feels like on purpose in so many ways you know like that's orchestrated from higher entities even above but in the 3d realm like it would what year was Francis born? Like the 90s? No, 2005. Oh, 2005. Okay. What so, yeah. In this one. Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> 2005. So, 1996, I think, was when the government decided to start regulating the profession. Because I think before 1996, maybe even 1991, it was really just like very wise traditional companions that right? That sort of gathered. And then they sort of thought like, oh, okay, we'll have OHIP cover us. Maybe we should apply to the government and join up. And then also too, like if women had to transfer into the hospital, their midwives were not allowed to attend. And I think that was very stressful and that motivated that push. But it it is kind of like, oh, it's bittersweet, bitter maybe. I don't know. (laughs) To think back and, and, and realize like, oh, in not us personally, like you and I, but us as utilizers of the of midwifery services, like we're the ones that pushed to have it I know. Regulated. And now it's like, oh, but what happens is it gets swallowed whole by a system that is so much bigger and more established than like it doesn't get to maintain itself. Not at all. And there still is I don't even know if there's like profiles, but like very intellectual beings enter into the midwifery space. Like there is an element of an intellectual, you know, brain. I always have never felt drawn to midwifery because I don't feel intellectual in that way at all. I'm always like, no, like we'll just watch the energy. And like there are elements of midwifery where um, there is an intellectual part of the brain that gets activated. Yeah, it's very framed. Yes, very left brain. But there is an element where there's a spiritual side of you as well. 
And so that obviously now we know the Amy Belair that that is. So when did they like clash or like what was what did how was your body's response when you started having to implement? Like, can you remember the first time you felt like you you had to implement like the regulated protocol as you were operating as a midwife during a birth? And it was like, oh, I do. And I, d- I did not have to do, I didn't realize it until, honestly, I think it was after, after Killian died. Because oh, when I, okay. so hmm. when I applied to midwifery, also I should say, like, I was really floundering. Like, I was a single mother. I was kind of like emotionally a hot mess. Like, I just didn't have my shit together. And was kind of living with my parents and working as a nanny and really loved doing that and teaching art on the side to little kids. Loved all of that, but really, I was wasn't making a lot of money, and I was really wanted to move out of my parents' house, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I also felt like I wanted a career, so I, I got into the midwifery program, and it's like I was so hungry to feel like an adult. You know what I mean? Like to yeah. feel like I had my shit together. That I was very willing and ready to put aside that spiritual part of myself. Because I kind of bought into, even though I resisted it for a long time, I ended up buying into the idea that that stuff is for, I don't know, like make-believe or imag- imagination or some, you know what I mean? Like it's I like do. Not. Well, again, not, when you're trained to be in the ground. 3D realm, that's not really, that's not how you make a living. Right. Exactly. And so, so I was like, okay, I, I just gotta, I gotta put that stuff aside. That's like the stuff for, for you know, my maiden self or something, you know, yeah. I have to step into the the adult version of me. And so I went to school and loved the schooling part. I loved it so much. Nothing really was sounding my alarm bells. It was a very challenging program, but being on campus for 18 months was great. It was a lot of fun to learn all that stuff. And then when I went on my first placement, which was a four month placement, I felt like such a bad ass. I was like, like had my little kit of my instruments and I had my like file of like, these are my clients and this is the thing. And like, I was so just excited to step into this profession and and do a good job. I had so much energy for it. And so I don't, I really do not recall at all feeling like, like I remember there was one cord evulsion during a birth and the cord evolved while I was trying to this part makes me shudder now but like you know assist with the birds of the placenta and but at the time I wasn't thinking like I mean that's just what everybody did they just that's what you're taught you're supposed to do is help the placenta come in okay so you had this cord evulsion yeah which if people listening don't know which I wouldn't expect you to know it just means that the cord, you could say the cord snapped, like the cord separated into two pieces. And it was while I was manually help. Oh, my God. Manually assisting with the removal of the placenta. When you say those words, does it just feel like so indoctrinated yeah. a bit? Yeah. 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 It's brutal. And I was doing it with my preceptor. So that helped that it wasn't only my hands on it. But then she had to have an actual like manual removal by the OB on call because she also like it just wasn't ready to come out, you know. And anyway, 
that was that was really traumatizing. But apart from that, in that first placement, I was just like on top of the world. I was like, I'm doing the thing that I have like, spent time and money and I prepared for. I've studied so hard and I'm like, I'm in it. I'm doing it. And I love my clients and they love me and I love my preceptors and they love me and everything's great. And and then in midwifery, the third year is kind of strange where you do these brief, like four week long, five different placements just to kind of get a feel of the whole rest of the midwifery world. So you do one. It's like, I don't know, professional one. Like I did mine with the Association of Ontario Midwives, which is so boring. Oh, my God. It's so boring. People are so nice, but desk work under fluorescent lights is not for me. Like what? And you were I, just charting? You were just reviewing files of... I was working on the creation of a sterilization protocol. So for sterilizing instruments and like autoclave stuff. And then you do like a labor and delivery nurse placement, an OBGYN placement, a NICU or a special care nurse replacement. And then there's another one too, and I can't remember what it was, but special populations, that's what it was. So that was a bit of a weird year, but my... My OB placement was so good. I loved it so much. And I was like right up in there scrubbing into surgeries, assisting on C-sections. I really got along with the OB I was working with and I still, nothing was ringing any bells. I was just like, this is just, this is just the system. And like, you know, oh, I don't know. I think I just felt like duper proud of myself that I could keep up. I could do. Yeah. It. Right. You know, it was like coming from ego, but also still coming from heart. Like I really, one of the things that, I got, you know, had emphasized in my review was that I take really good histories because I listen to people and I would review what was already like sent over. Like, so if they were there for a gynecological consultation, like too much bleeding or fibroids or something like that, he would have me go in. He would see 80 to 100 patients a day in clinic. Isn't that insane? He was like, I don't even, I'm not even convinced he's fully a human being. I think he's probably partly AI. Like, I don't even know how he kept up with that. But he would have me go in and start the appointment by like greeting the person and doing a review of the history that was sent over from their doctor. And almost every time that history was insanely wrong, like not just a little bit, but like outlandishly incorrect. And so I would do very thorough like histories and, you know, people were very happy with that. So anyway, I still felt like a badass. And then while I was on that placement is when I met my now life partner and father of my other children. And we hit it off very quickly and got pregnant very quickly. We were both, you know, it, it, it threw us off. Like neither of us was planning on this, but we were both excited about it. And I was just going into my special populations. No, first I was going into my special care nursery one, which ended up was so weird. It ended up being at Sunnybrook with a respiratory therapist for one and a half shifts. So seeing very, very, very preterm births at a level three hospital. And then, which I had no experience with before. And then, then all of a sudden that placement was pulled, like the, they, there was no insurance coverage. So I just had to, it was literally there for what's 12, what's 12 plus six, 18 hours. Okay. And then they were like, yeah, you have to leave. Like you can't even be on the property because the insurance agreement between your school and this hospital has expired and we're in the process of renegotiating it. But if something were to happen to you, if you were even to slip on a puddle and get hurt, like it's just a, like a lawsuit nightmare. So you need to leave now. <laughs> so it's like, oh, all right. And then I ended up 
doing the rest of that placement in Owen Sound, which is where I now live and where I ended up working as a midwife. So it was really interesting, very, very serendipitous. But I, while I was on my special population placement, which was at a, a Native Friendship Center, and I was pregnant with Killian, I ended up getting rear ended in traffic. It was really, it was just one of those days, like a, re- a wet road and a lot of traffic. And somebody, I was in the left of two lanes. And somebody had stopped to turn left and like every person successively behind that person was stopping and didn't really have, like by the time it got to me, like I barely had time to stop before hitting the person in front of me, but I did, but the person behind me didn't have enough time. And so I got rear-ended and it was like at very low speeds because I was already stopped, right? But I bumped the person in front of me. So I kind of went boom, boom. And I, I, that was enough to set that pregnancy on a course where ultimately Killian ended up dying. He was born alive, but he ended up dying because my, the placenta kind of, I think there was a marginal abruption. And so then there was bleeding in, in between the amniotic sac and the wall of the uterus and it accumulated and it eventually caused my water to break completely Mm -hmm. at 20 weeks. And so I was on bed rest for six weeks. Five of those weeks were at home. One of those weeks was in a level three hospital. And then and then he was born and he lived for 20 days in the in the NICU and then he died. And after that I just everything in midwifery, I could I just felt it very differently. But it, but you know what? It's because I saw the I it's like I had to live through it. No, I'm not saying that's why it happened. But in order to be able to see it, I had to live through. Because basically, in hindsight, I actually don't think I was in labor. I think I was just having Braxton Hicks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know because it was my second pregnancy. And I'd never had them with Francis. And I told the nurse because I didn't know. And the nurse didn't know. And they were prepared already thinking she's going to pop off at any point. And we have to respond to this emergency. And it's like, I didn't even tell her like, something terrible is happening. Save my life or anything or save my baby. I just was like, I think I might be having contractions. And that little utterance of that to somebody that I thought that was the person to tell that to cascaded into ultimately the very preterm birth of my son, which cascaded into ultimately the death of my son. And so it's like I had to see, and I don't hold that against any of them. Like, but did you admit still- yourself yeah. or did you, you admitted yourself after the accident or? No, after, well, when my water broke, I was on placement doing an assessment for preterm rupture membranes for somebody else. Okay. And I'm just gushing fluid. And I like tell my preceptor, I was like, I think something's wrong. I'm leaking a lot of fluid. And she was like, I think you need to, and this was way after, you know, like I just kept putting on those big hospital pads and just soaking them with amniotic fluid. Okay. And she she was like, I think you probably just need to go home and call your midwife. But this was hours later, but it wouldn't have done anything anyway. Like the water would have all come out. Right. Broken. And um, so then I called my midwife and I had to go to the hospital and they did an assessment and found no amniotic fluid. But, but, 
his heartbeat was going strong and you know they did they found no amniotic fluid like they tested your pad yeah it was all gone by then it was all gone hours later hours right okay 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 and and it also happened it happened at like 11 p.m and i waited until something like seven to page my midwife because i was thinking like oh god she like what are they going to do for me i should probably just let them sleep i don't know it's weird like i was in midwife head you know right yeah not in like I'm a client and this is my own baby head. It's right. very, very strange. But anyway, he was still alive and like, you know, they did an ultrasound and they were like, there doesn't, from what they could tell in the ultrasound, it did not appear that there was anything wrong with him. So they, you know, they gave me the option of like seeing the writing on the wall and, and inducing labor and terminating the pregnancy at that point. But his heartbeat was so steady. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Right. So I stayed in the hospital for three days. I went on prophylactic antibiotics to prevent any ascending infection. And three days later, they did another ultrasound to see if there was any fluid or like, was he still alive? And that was the scariest ultrasound I've ever, I've ever had. But he was still alive and some fluid was accumulating. So what that suggested was like, whatever, something happened, Mm -hmm. but that, you know, like all the physiology. The regrowth was there. was, Was, yeah, still occurring. So. The plan was just to do bed rest, but he was not viable at that point because at that point he was like 20 and a half weeks along. So there was no point in them admitting me to the hospital because he was not viable. Like if he had been born five days later, there's nothing anybody could do for him. So so I was on bed rest at home. Like based on their viability of their sort of protocol, that's what they consider. Well, right. But like if a baby's born at 21 weeks... I mean, I don't want to like, I'm not, I'm not God, so I can't say that. No, right. Right. But, but there's really, that baby's only half cooked. Like it right. doesn't have the physiology to. And so isn't it so interesting <laughs> to me anyways, and this is my own personal belief, but like at 21 weeks, like my automatic response necessarily wouldn't be to like access professional care like it would be like okay well let's see what I guess this soul is choosing and Mm -hmm. to potentially say goodbye to them in my own autonomy versus going into a situation that there's so much ego and 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 education to want to save that it kind of interferes with the human process of what happens yeah I haven't walked it you've walked it so I'm just curious after walking that, like, is there a part of you where it's like it, what do you think it would have felt like if you just autonomously had sort of kept moving and resting and allowing yourself and Killian to decide the ending? Well, that was real. That was what I wanted to do. And so the, the, OB that I had was the OB that I worked with and okay. we had a really good rapport. So that helped because I very much trusted him. And then the midwife that I had was a former preceptor as well. So I really trusted her. And so that was a huge, like, I'm so thankful that I wasn't dealing with strangers and that they also appreciated how much I, I knew. Um, right. I didn't feel like they saw me or treated me like a student or like an inf- like underling or something like that. They saw me as just somebody like an equal at a different point in my journey. But 
when we got to, I guess it was like 24 weeks is when they started talking about making plans for me to go to Toronto for admission to an antenatal unit. Because at the hospital that I was at, which was RVH and Barry, they could only accept babies from, it had previously been 32 weeks onward, but they had just had a change to 30 weeks. But I had a feeling that the staff wasn't really comfortable with 30 weeks. So everything was looking pretty good on the ultrasounds. And so I think everybody was very optimistic that somehow this baby was just going to have a really weird rest of his pregnancy, but he was going to make it out. Right. And and so I did not want to go to a hospital until 28 weeks because I had done that 18-hour shift at another level three hospital. And I'd seen, you know, what it means for them to be born before 28 weeks. And so I, I said to them, I don't want to go until, and I don't want any resuscitative efforts if my baby's born before 28 weeks. And they were like, well, you know, we can't really like we can't even do that here anyway. So we're not like we can't say what we, you know, I hear you, but I can't I'm not going to be involved. So I can't guarantee anything like that. And anyway, when I said that I wanted to stay home, I was really talked out of it in a way where I ended up thinking I ended up coming away with the impression that Legally, I was obligated to, like, if my baby was born, say, at 27 weeks at home and I had refused to go to the hospital, my baby died, I could be held, I don't know, like, legally responsible. I don't actually think that's the case, but I I still don't know. I mean, even as I'm saying it right now, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure somebody could make a case for that. So they'd make a case against you as being negligent and then what something would happen to you like you would be imprisoned or you would or Francis would be taken or like what was kind of possibly be charged with like infanticide or manslaughter or something like that. Some something possibly like I'm not saying that's what would happen. But but that's kind of the way in which they controlled the narrative a little bit. Kind of. I mean, nobody said anything like that. What I honestly think they all thought he was going to be born alive mm-hmm. and live. And so they were like, why wouldn't you go be there where they can deal with it right away? And then I also remember my OB, like he was so awesome. And for everything that everybody's, you know, we all like love to hate on the medical staff and hate on OB. But he was he was so good. Like he would text message with me. And right. mind you, we had a previous relationship. Good relationship, yeah. But like, he was just very, very, I don't, I didn't feel like he didn't care about right. my, I don't think people that enter the system don't care. And that's but something I've I said. Some of them don't care. <laughs> I think a lot of them do though. Yeah. I think yeah. when they do enter, there is an, there's an element of, of empathy and love. And then the ego and the sort of hierarchical starts to play in. And it it's just brainwashed. You yeah. just, yeah, you get brainwashed into the system. And yeah. like me, like you don't question it until you experience something where you're like, oh, huh. But he's so. Well, so, you experience it as a mother, you know? Yeah. He was just essentially like, I remember, you know, when he like said bye to me before I actually went to the hospital, he was like, like, I'll see you at 30 weeks. 
And I know he meant it. He was like, yeah, you're going to be there for five weeks and then you're going to come back and you're going to be on bed rest here. And then your baby will be born probably somewhere like between 30 and 40 weeks. And we've got you. I think that's really what he thought. So, so anyway, so I went to the hospital and that was kind of a disaster. It was really, really stressful. Like I'm, there's no wheelchair. There's nobody to me. I had to do all this walking, going up to like all the way up to different foot. And I'm like, if I'm, if this is such an emergency, like there's nothing set up. I don't even know where I'm supposed to go. Like, anyway, it was just very, very strange, but I ended up finally in a bed. And I remember on the day that I reported that I was having contractions. Oh, and the day, of course, the day that I arrived and I'm doing all this walking, I'm like having like tightening probably. Oh, some bleeding. Yeah. And and bleeding. And I tell the nurses and they're like, not a big deal. And I was like, all right. But then whenever, I guess it was like 10 days later when I started having these tightenings, the reason they were completely painless, which is what makes me. And and now I've had two other children. So I'm like, oh, they were brass and hicks. That's what it was. They were painless, rhythmic tightenings. And the only reason I noticed them was because they were squeezing out amniotic fluids. And mm. I was like hyper aware of that feeling. And I mentioned it and they put me on the monitor. And oh, yeah, because you can on monitors, you can detect Rex and Hicks contractions. And they all, you know, they, they got in the whatever doctor was on the floor who wanted to do a cervical exam. And I was like, no, you're not because I've gotten this far without an infection. So nobody's sticking anything in my vagina. And at that point, like I didn't even necessarily think I was in labor and they just badgered me until I consented. Like, I don't even remember how it happened that I consented. It just, they just insisted and insisted and insisted and insisted. And, and, oh, what was it, Victoria? It was less than one centimeter dilated. Well, then I'm not dilated, am I? If I'm less than a centimeter dilated, there's no dilation happening. But they couldn't leave it alone. They could, and then I think I'm having like cramping now out of stress. And my heart rate was so high. It was higher than his because I was so stressed out. I saw what, like, I realized what was happening and there seemed to be no way of backing out of it. So then they transferred me over to the, the labor side of the floor and hook me up to the monitor and I'm now I'm having contractions but for for over eight hours of a supposed active labor pattern and at that point it was painful one centimeter dilated the whole time and yet and I asked like can you not give me a tocolytic can you not give me something to relax the uterus no because if you're in labor there's for it's for a reason we have to let this process, you know, occur. Like the baby has to be like, like they were probably thinking there's an infection or something like that. And plus my heart rate was so high. So then like, they're like, oh. Oh, so now they're allowing the physiological process of birth happening, but. Yeah. And, and I ended up having two shots of morphine because I also couldn't even, like, I couldn't, like I was on the monitors, right? So I couldn't do anything to alleviate the pain. I'm like sitting there in the middle of the night trying to have silent contractions so that nobody knows like I'm like trying to fool them and it's not working because I'm hooked up to the monitor and then I had the OB team come in and say like what's really what's best for you 
is to have a vaginal birth. Oh, and my baby was breech, which happens a lot with like rupture of membranes. They just end up flipping. I think it's better for their brain or something like that. So that was the concern is a, a pre super preterm. So the OBs were like, it's better for you to have a breach or a breach birth. It's not better for your baby. The outcome is worse for your baby. But they were like, you know, you like if you have a C-section, we have to do a classical T incision because your uterus is small at that point. Right. It's only 26 weeks of gestation. So they can't do the usual one where it's just one like low horizontal cut of the bikini right. line. And so that means every subsequent birth will have to be a C-section. And, you know, so they were really trying to advocate for the preservation of my uterus, which I'm glad that that was what they were thinking. But it was like, basically you have to choose between your baby or yourself, which is an awful position to put somebody in who has had no sleep and is on her second shot of morphine. Like I couldn't even think. And then the pediatricians came in and they were like, what's better for your baby is to have a c-section and so ultimately i ended up consenting to a c-section and like i realized that there was there was no way nobody was going to just leave me alone oh there was this one one student doctor who came in and like he was like surrounded with an entourage of other students and he wanted to do a vaginal exam and i was like well can i go pee first i have a full bladder because I'm also on like, you know, I have an IV with magnesium sulfate going through my system. And anyway, and he's like, no, no, you can't because you could be fully dilated and you could end up delivering your baby on the toilet. And I was like, I'm not dilated at all. And he was like, well, you don't know that. And I was like, just let me go pee. And he's like, I can catheterize you. And I was like, fine, do a vaginal exam and I'll piss on your hand, which I did a little bit. I mean, I wasn't literally trying to pee on his hand. But I was one centimeter dilated and I was just so, so furious that, you know, I'm saying I'm not dilated. I know I'm not dilated, but, you know, women don't know anything. And, you know, when you give birth, I can remember I hit nine centimeters. I remember feeling a portal open. I didn't have anyone check me at all. And I was like, oh, I'm nine or ten. This is a portal. Like, I literally remember that, yeah. that brain body connection. Yeah. You just, you know, no. right? Yeah. It's like, it's almost like, I know this word is like so intense and it gets thrown around, but it's like, it's very rape-like. Oh, yes. It felt. And, and I it's mean, it's like so just and humiliating and very dismissive yeah. of the fact that, you know, like. And yeah, you're, and you're, and you're, you're a professional, like you're, you're, you're them. Oh, I didn't try to tell like, them that. You're them. Yeah, didn't matter. It, it was very, it was, it was just very frustrating to see. And again, like, the, you know, I can hear some bitterness coming up, but it ultimately when I look back on it, I'm like, really, there's nobody that I can blame, nor would I want to. No, it's just the frustration that that is how the system works. It's yes. like they're so trained to completely negate me and everything I'm saying in favor of their protocols. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, so then, so then I got a spinal and I went to the operating room and they were prepping me for a C-section. 
And one of the nurses who was catheterizing me saw some meconium at, you know, the like, well, the, the medical term is the introitus, but basically at my vagina, they saw some meconium or what looked like meconium. And she just quietly mentioned it to the OB that was going to do the C-section. And she was like, oh, maybe I should just check. And she checked and my son was in the birth canal. And I actually believe that like partly I think probably my body was holding itself closed because of fear. But I also think that when I surrendered to having a C-section, it's like, okay, this has to happen now. And I don't know, I kind of feel like it was like my son's, like one of his gifts to me was to just be like, I'm just going to come out, mom, and your uterus is going to stay intact. And so all of a sudden he was like born on the operating room table. And my poor partner, they told him this was his last chance to go to the bathroom before our son was born. So he wasn't even there. He didn't even get to see the birth of his son, which was very traumatizing for him. But Killian was born alive and he was so beautiful and so perfect. And he weighed 880 grams, which is just under two pounds. And his Apgar scores were one, one, and nine. So he definitely needed a resuscitation. But he was really, really beautiful. And he he did really well. Like he didn't have any seizures, which is something that can happen for newborn babies or any brain bleeds for the first 11 days. Like he was doing great. And again, like everybody was very optimistic that this was going to be one of those micro preemies that pulls through and does well. He did have respiratory problems because the water was broken from 20 weeks. So his lungs were underdeveloped even for 26 weeks. But he was, he didn't need any medications. He was just on caffeine. Like he didn't need any antibiotics or anything else. He was on caffeine at TPN. And he wasn't ready to start nursing because he couldn't breathe yet. But I was pumping like crazy and they were feeding it to him through an NG tube. And then on the 11th day, all of a sudden he just did not look good. And I just knew something was off. And I mentioned it to the nurse and she was new with us. Like she had not ever been assigned to us before. So she was like, I'm just going to trust you, which I really appreciate. And she was like, if something looks off to you, then like, I'm going to call um, the, the pediatrician. And they came and they took all that stuff very seriously. And they did an abdominal x-ray and they found a perforation in his intestine. So he had necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a risk for preterm babies. And so all of a sudden he was being transferred like stat to sick kids to have abdominal surgery. And they, like, it wasn't advanced. It was just one spot, which was like amazing. But they removed that part of his bowel and, but it was too late. The infection had gotten into his bloodstream. So he was septic. And when, when, when I saw him on the other side, he was a totally like, it was completely different different case and he for a few days he was hanging in the balance really didn't look good and then his blood pressure normalized and it looked like hey he might pull through this and then they did a routine cranial ultrasound and saw that probably part of the reason his blood pressure normalized is because it had blown through the capillaries in his brain stem and 
So he was having like very profuse real-time brain bleeds, which meant that if he were to live, like he probably would have no motor function, no cognitive function. Like he'd just probably be a body that doesn't work and a brain that doesn't work. And so they advised that we should let him go. And that was really agonizing. And I'm very thankful for my partner, Alex, because he was very firm. Like, yeah, we should let him go. I don't know. I I, I might have backed out because that was such a hard call to make. But I do think it was the the best call, but it was very hard. And so that's what we did. And I got to sing my son out of this life. And I feel extremely grateful for all the moments that I had with him. I feel so grateful that he let us be with him, that he didn't just, you know, die like (laughs) while we were sleeping or while we were getting something to eat. And yeah, he really opened, he completely changed my life and totally opened my eyes up to the system and the way that those protocols basically sabotage the natural unfolding of what is destined to be in a sense. So I think that if I had been, you know, supported in staying home, he would have died anyway, but he would have been born and he could have died on my chest and we could have just accepted it together. And I do like, I wish that that had happened, but I also don't like that doesn't keep me up at night. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah, because there's a lot of like terminology and sort of the way that you just and thank you for moving through that process again. Because I'm sure each time new things come in. So thanks for going there and sharing this. There's terminology and sort of not labels, but like you had said you'd been given information about the brain bleed and why his blood pressure automatic sort of stabilized itself and the bowel piece. So some people find that to be helpful in moving through their process in terms of saying goodbye to their their little ones. And I can appreciate that for sure. And I think that's where that profession is maybe meeting a need for certain individuals that need that information in that time to Mm -hmm. sort of move through that grief process and say goodbye to their babies. And then there is, but then I think as the road opens up and you move through it more and more, you start to realize that it isn't simple. Death and grief aren't simple. But like you said, just allowing him to leave his 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 soul and leave his physical body on your chest you know what that would have felt like as well for him Mm -hmm. leaving the earth yeah it yeah it's kind of like at at the end when I was processing all this I wondered if I should like there was a part of me for a while that was like should I have just let him go when they first offered it to me when my water broke Like, did I prolong his suffering? A bunch of questions I think we very naturally ask ourselves. Right. Yeah, I've just had to like reconcile and be like, well, it is what it is. And his suffering is over now. So, you know, like just give myself grace basically. But I do, there, there was a point I listened to on the Freebird Society podcast. 
the episode where Yolanda talks about her birth with Ignatius, who was born, I think he was their eighth child, so not this last one, the one before that. And he was born at home and he came out like white and limp and everybody actually thought that he had died. He had, you know, he was born still and that nobody touched him. And her husband Lee whispered to her because she was kind of out of it too. It was a really hard birth as I recall her, her saying, he whispered to her, take your baby yo. And she picked him up and held him, but they all thought he was dead. And none of them tried to save him. And she was the first one to pick him up and hold him. And then she said, come back, baby. And he opened his eyes, which is such a beautiful story. But listening to that was so necessary for a final, like, or one of the final pieces of healing for me. I cried and cried and cried because I was like, that's exactly it, is that these people who were trained to do this and meant well tried to save us. And they robbed me of the right to be, I don't know, I don't know what to call it. It's like the, because I did get to hold him when he died and I did get to sing him out. So I feel very thankful, but it wasn't really on my terms. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I feel like it didn't. We didn't need saving. What we needed was just to have, like, the way our journey went, just be honored and have space held for that. Yeah. So you move through all of that, and you, and now you're looking at this system, and and Killian isn't here, and you have to go back to work in it. And how did that feel? awful it was like a complete self-betrayal I kind of it is something that I do kind of regret but I I just didn't really know what to do with myself like I took nine months off to grieve and then basically it was just like I had these huge student loans to pay off you know and I was like not like I didn't have any qualifications to work a job that would I just it was a money thing and now where I'm at with money I'm like I totally could have figured something else out but I just didn't know what to do at the time so I went back to school and that off and it was really really hard I mean I still miss midwifery I love the clients I love the babies I love a lot of my coworkers, both in the midwifery practice and in hospitals and it's just really the model and the system that I'm but the but isn't it funny that these people that work in it keep perpetuating it though Oh, and they don't see it. Like, I remember them thinking a lot of them thought I was crazy. Some of them were like, we could edge to that place of being like, I don't think the system is actually serving. Our, like, I don't think we're practicing the midwifery that we intended to practice when it became regulated. And some of them were willing to go there a little bit, but a lot of them like, what are you talking about? We're helping people. Like, you know what I mean? Just... Mm. Anyway, so it felt awful and I could see this is when I felt it in my body when like I would have to make a call based on a protocol. Plus I was a, a senior student. So I also was having to prove myself with literally everything I was doing. Like I was being watched like a hawk, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and so 
to get that piece of paper for them to license you. Yeah, that's right. And so like, I just remember so many times being like, this isn't, I don't think we did right by that woman. I don't think we did right by that baby. I don't, I don't think we did it right. I think we were lazy and we relied on the protocols and the system and we did not troubleshoot, you know, challenging labors without like in, and I'm talking about in the absence of an emergency. Sometimes there are emergencies. I've been present for them. They're very rare though, from my observation. The rest of the time it is like inconveniences. And the truth is like you're tired. It's really hard to be a birth worker, especially with the on-call model. You're tired. You have other people paging you. You have a family. In my case, like grieving, you know, my, the death of my child. And so you, t- you rely on yeah, the, the handbook hospital and the, the protocols and the shortcuts. Yeah. And, yeah. And, th- and that's not okay. And then when I was working as a midwife, then there were a lot of times where I was like, this is wrong. This is straight up wrong. What we are doing right now is wrong. The thing that like, this is not what this woman needs. This is not what this baby needs. And it was crazy. Like, I just could not get through to anybody. I Did your body I, respond? Did oh, you yeah. have any, like, aut- like a- any of your autoimmune or, like, like did- Oh, I'm sure that's why my autoimmune, yeah. like, compounded. Like, it really only flared up last year, like, to, to an, an irreversible, unignorable way. But prior to that, I was constantly using steroid creams, too. Okay. So my body was totally being, like, like that's not okay this is not right and i i just remember the feeling of having to force my hand to like be for example like open up open up like somebody's gonna call me i gotta it's gonna come through my computer and i gotta turn off it's okay it's so weird through anyway like for example, opening up exam gloves to do a, a vaginal exam, or opening up like like filling up a bag of penicillin to start somebody on a GBS protocol, just because they we didn't have the results of their swab yet. <laughs> like, yeah, even that alone, like the amount of penicillin G that is given willy nilly, the insane astronomical dosages that are given willy-nilly because somebody is swabbed gbs positive or is gbs unknown is so like i don't i don't know why people don't realize that this is dangerous like why healthcare professionals do not realize that this is dangerous and that to me it's not okay that everything you're ultimately doing when you work in the system is for self-preservation and self-protection at the end of the day, you really can't serve mothers and you can't serve babies because you're serving yourself first all the time by practicing defensively. So all of your note taking, all of your communications with your colleagues, like like every informed choice conversation that you're having with your clients, everything, everything, everything is to cover your butt so that if something goes wrong, you don't take the fall. And that is messed up. It's not okay to do it that way. And the thing about midwifery that really, really upsets me is that they refuse to call it as it is, like as a whole, you know, there are yeah. some midwives that, that do. Well, and they but, leave the profession like you, right? They take responsibility and step back. 
Right. Or, I mean, you know a couple that are in the profession and they will just say it like this isn't. No, they know that they they belong for whatever reason. And it's not for me to judge their journey. And I think that they're right. Like some of them, I know that they belong in the system. There's something that they're doing that is worth like it's more beneficial on the balance. But they're willing to admit the limitations that the system places on them and just be transparent about that. But on a, as a whole, midwives are all like women-centered care or now it's like pregnant person-centered care. And it's just so frustrating because it's like, well, it's really not that at all. It's like gentle obstetrics. It's a little bit more touchy-feely obstetrics at best. At best. There are also midwives that are very much like they could be obese. They just have longer appointments. And I think the worst part of it is that women buy spiritual midwifery, get a midwifery clinic, and they're traumatized because they're like, I just read spiritual midwifery and my midwife was not like that. Whereas if they, it's like going to the store and like being like, I'm, you know, I want to buy an orange and then you bite into it and it's like a pomegranate. Like that is like, like your yes. system has a little bit of a response to that. And when you're like, I want this orange and I thought it was a pomegranate. Was, and I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm it's so confusing. It's as well. then you get the message like, it was an orange. Like, what are you talking about? You kind of right. gasp, like. And then you're gaslit. And then you're a mother. So you have this other soul here that you're like, oh, okay. And now you have a, you have a, a journey here and I'm responsible for it at this point. And I yeah. just had a pomegranate, which I thought I was having an orange, you know, not to simplify it like that, but that is very confusing and traumatizing for women. Very, very, very. Very. And then the thing, too, is you don't know, especially if it's your first baby or your first time with midwifery, you don't know going in. You no. just think that your midwife is going to be like super nice and your feelings are going to be taken into account. You don't realize that it's only medical things that are going to come up. And some women, that's what they want. And and I don't think I think that they would hear a conversation like this and be like, what? Like, yeah, yes. I no, absolutely. Say, right? But there there are women who definitely are like i thought i was coming in to get holistic care me yeah yeah something happened to me and this doesn't feel right and so it's so interesting like you know we're honoring killian and his gifts because he really has illuminated you on this path which i know i'm so grateful that you're in the realms that you're in now and you have kieran you have your daughter Mm -hmm. so you're still practicing midwifery when you had her and I remember you speaking about her birth being pretty painful and kind of managed at home with midwife colleagues Mm -hmm. and then you have William is William 18 months old yes yes so he's 18 months and you you did still access the regulated midwifery care yeah you did I don't know, are you calling him a free birth or do you want to step into that? What what sort of brought you back to a regulated midwife for William? Alex was very afraid of the idea of a free birth. I 100% knew it was going to be a free birth. Totally, totally. Like basically I knew I was going to have another baby like maybe 10 days after Kieran was born. And I was like, and it's going to be a free birth. Um, but he was really nervous about it. He somehow felt like 
I was putting the responsibility on him. And I was like, honey, we live like 10 minutes away from the hospital. If I need to go to the hospital, like I will go. Like I'm not, this is not a death wish. I right. just don't want anybody like meddling with my process. That's all. Right. So, so it was kind of to appease him a little bit. And also I was a little bit concerned. Like, so I still haven't registered William's birth. He has a health card because he was born. Like, you know, I, w- I was seeing midwife. Nobody was in attendance. I never called her until the morning. And I was like, I had a baby. And she's like, great. But he, I haven't registered him. And that's partly just due to procrastination and overwhelm. But part of it, too, was like, I feel very suspicious about the Why didn't they register him if you were under their care, technically? Well, oh, everybody, they... everybody does their own, like, Service Ontario, like, registering. Oh, right. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. For the birth certificate. Right. Yeah. So he doesn't have a birth certificate. Okay. Or those things okay. i still haven't done it yet and at the time i was like not sure if i was ever gonna do it and i thought well it's probably a good thing to see a midwife if i do decide to so then i can like there's like proof that i was pregnant you know what i mean and that this is my baby and i also mm. thought like if i don't do it there's also documented proof that i was pregnant and this is my baby okay. and which maybe sounds extreme but I know it's funny. So I do. Sometimes I hear you talk about that and I question my biggest fear. I don't know why it's the weirdest thing is like being in jail. It feels very, un, it feels very weird. But anyways, but like my son, Noble, I really didn't want to register him. Like I didn't want to put him in the system. And I yeah. just had friends write their affidavits confirming that they had seen me pregnant. And, you know, they, they knew that I had, that he had come earth side and but that is the that's the matrixy thing, right? That yeah. happens in our brain when we sort of question that. And like you had said, like even with Killian, like they were like, well, you know, like if you go home and have him and you don't really try to come back here and allow us to save him, like there could be these potential charges. And so it's very interesting how they try to sort of slip in here and there to kind of create that fear. There's a midwife in Kentucky, Marin, and she's opening up a birth sanctuary and she was just served this like, I don't know, whatever you get served. And they're like, you can't be opening a birth center here. And she's like, it's not like going to be a birth center. But it's just interesting how they try to come in and try to control and say like, you're not allowed to like be autonomous and sovereign in your life as a human. Like, this is so wild. I know. And the fear sometimes overtakes you, you know, it can until you sort of regulate your energies, your chakras, your mental state. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So so you haven't registered William. I haven't. I haven't gotten around to it. I don't really know where I land. I'll probably end up registering him, but I don't I don't really know. But anyway, that was my reason. And going with her but I also selected her very specifically she was like she's one of those midwives that is doing great work in the system and is like upholding the the true nature of midwifery to the best of her ability within the system like she's very gifted at navigating all of the stupid things and truly prioritizing the woman and the baby, um, she, yeah, she's, I have a lot of respect for her. 
So, but ultimately, like, I just knew I wasn't calling anybody. Yeah. So I always knew I wasn't going to call her. But I thought if I was, if I changed my mind at the last minute, she would be the one that I would want there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's important for women, too. There's a big, and I'm not going to say... <clears throat> It's a new trendy thing, free birthing. But I do ultimately in my heart feel where my values lies. Having support is really, really vital and really important for Mm -hmm. women in Mm -hmm. birth. I agree. You know, I'm not doing that alone. Yeah. You, You shared so openly, Amy. I'm so grateful for your honesty, your candidness, the bittersweet living regulated midwifery. Or was it just great? No, it was great. I was like, I'm free. Like, I was so happy to be gone and never. I I had like PTSD. I had to process over it. Plus the strain it put on my partnership, which I think is common for a lot of midwives. And. But I do like I the thing is that I I miss it sometimes not enough to go back, but I right. definitely miss, I'm like I miss working with moms and babies and families. And so when we have a mutual friend that reached out yesterday and I was like, it was just made my heart so happy to be able to hold space for uh-huh. her. In like, I feel like that's just a woman's calling, right? Yeah. But yes, you're right. There is an element in that birth space where it just feels very. Right. Like ho- I, it feels at home when you do that as women. I get absurdly excited whenever somebody is pregnant. Like. So almost sometimes I'm like, is this inappropriate? Because I don't even know how they feel about it. Like I'm so excited. It's just wild. I well, you you know the beings that need to be here. It, like I loved your I'd love for you to talk about where people can find you from the podcast. I'll of course add that in the show notes as well. But you you have this in your store right now. It's the spirit babies. That was a really cool activation that you provided. And you do help mothers and babies with just your channeling and your honesty in this realm. So thank you. Where, where can, you know, you're not a practicing midwife anymore, but you are doing (laughs) so many amazing things and so many ways for people to work with you. So can you share with everybody just some of the places where you're at? Yeah. So you know, we were talking about this before we press record. I'm like, where actually can people find me? Like, I have the thing. So you can find me on Instagram. My handle is currently at cosmic.oracle. Beware, there are frauds that will try and talk you into bogus reading in your DM. So don't, I will never do that. That's not me. But if you search Amy Belair, because I'm thinking of changing it to just my name anyway. So if you just search Amy Belair, you'll find me. And I'm on Facebook as Amy Melissa. I have a website, amybelair.com. But the place that I'm the most present, I would say, is my podcast, which is Third Eye Awakening. It can be found on all the podcast places. And I have a Patreon group around that podcast. And that's where I show up and I do a very least an energy report every week and a bonus episode for the podcast, trying to figure out how to do more because I really love the community building aspect. And I am kind of desiring to figure out a way to incorporate more of like this, this blend my, my understanding of the medical system with my spiritual understanding 
to be able to answer questions for women who are trying to conceive, who are pregnant, who have newborns, who have toddlers, like all through the whole spectrum. So if you're ever, you know, you're like, oh, I think I I have a question for Amy. You can try reaching out. I also do have a four and a half year old and a one and a half year old. So not always the promptest at answering my messages, but those ones about motherhood tend to like like get me in the you spot. You have the signal. Yeah. Or even like, would you, are you still offering your 2023 channeling Akashic readings? I am. Yeah, I have. So I have 2023 year ahead readings that I do through tarot cards and the Akashic records. Could people, um, could, could someone, if they wanted to ask you specific questions, like not pre- prenatally, but like around motherhood or what might be coming up in their pregnancy, could they gear their questions more towards that as well for their reading? Yeah, yeah. yeah they okay. could. Yeah, because in my Akashic readings, like I'm pretty good at connecting with people's souls. And and so like I can do spirit baby readings and just kind of connect in with like the actual soul essence of like somebody's living child or their, you know, their spirit baby and, and help bring through clarity about all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Thank you, Amy, for being here today. I'm sorry for our technical difficulty. Thanks for waiting, getting back on, just holding this time in busy motherhood. I know it's tough. So thanks for sharing intricately your journey with Killian and where he's brought you to now. And I'm just so grateful for you and for being on here today. Just being honest. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I really appreciate having a space to be honest about it because these are things that I don't incorporate so much into what I talk about all the time, but they're very alive in me. So Mm. to, to just talk candidly. Yeah, it felt alive and I feel grateful that you shared it with all of us. So thank you. You all in show notes, I'll put how you can access Amy. She's just a beautiful, beautiful soul here doing love on the earth. So thank you so much. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you. Love you. Love you.